Hi, I'm Glenn. And I'm Jim, and welcome to the Backstage Show. Before we get into the topic of this particular episode, I would like to take the opportunity to issue a disclaimer. See, during the post-production process, we hit a bit of a technical snafu. As this episode was recorded over Skype, what we typically do in this situation is that Glenn and I separately record our own audio tracks, and then I mix them together afterward. I also record a reference track from the Skype conversation, which helps me to sync the tracks up later on. Unfortunately, something particularly terrible happened with Glenn's audio track, rendering it rather unpleasant to listen to, if intelligible at all. Furthermore, that horrible mishap resulted in the original audio track getting erased from existence. It was terrible. Short of having to re-record the entire episode again, there was only one other thing we could do, and that was to use the Skype reference track itself for Glenn's side of the conversation, which is exactly what I did. So you'll hear that part from Glenn, you'll hear my normal audio track. Unfortunately, there was only so much I could do to blend the two together, but I still think it makes for an intelligible conversation, one that you'll hopefully enjoy, and more importantly, one that we didn't have to re-record over again. So without further ado, here endeth the disclaimer, and now on to the episode. This week on the Backstage Show, we're going to be discussing our top five most influential shows. Well, Glenn, what do you mean by influential shows? I mean shows that have influenced us. Us personally. <laughs> yes. Not, so it's not, not necessarily, necessarily the community theater oeuvre, but just us personally. Correct. Just our own personal oeuvre. Got it. <laughs> so we kind of like started off trying to define exactly what what it means for something to be influential to us, what it means for something to influence us. It influence? Influence? I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, just... yeah, and, and that can kind of manifest itself in many different ways. And I really had to think about what you had in mind when you proposed the idea, and it kind of made more sense to me as you explained it to me a little bit better. Yeah. So some of the criteria that I came up with were, uh, I mean, roles, uh, a show that contains roles that are interesting to us, intriguing to us, something that we might want to play or maybe that we already have played. Like a dream role, for instance? Yeah, like a dream role or maybe roles that we think are entirely out of our reach, but still influenced us and I guess trying to reach them. A stretch goal, an aspiration, as it were. Yeah. Like, here's one that's not on my list, but I've always wanted to play Hamlet. I never got so? the chance. And I don't think I don't see me ever getting the chance, although I did manage to read some Hamlet when we had uh, when we were discussing Shakespeare. <laughs> That's our, right. Uh, a few uh, episodes back. Yes, a few episodes back on our April Fool's Day special. So that was like my dream come true. I got to crappily read some Hamlet <laughs> on, on a second rate podcast. And if you think our podcast is not second rate, you can let us know that by emailing us at podcast at backstage dot link or even better. Give us a phone call at 267-225-8869. You can also send us a text message there. Or you can find us at our website, backstage.link, or on Facebook, on facebook.com slash thebackstagepod, all one word. Or Twitter, at thebackstagepod. Also all one word. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Facebook and Twitter are the Backstage Pod. Website backstage.link. Email podcast at backstage.link. And that phone number once again is 267-225-8869. All right, we're done plugging ourselves and uh Oh thank God. <laughs> So moving on, uh, discussing what makes something influential to us. So we talked about intriguing roles. There's also uh, directorial interests, as we are both directors. Yeah, I mean, you could have a dream role, but you could also have a dream show that you've always wanted to direct or just a show that came along that really spoke to you. Something that we wanted to direct, something that we have directed, something that, you know might not be in sync with the usual community theater shows like a less a less frequently done show yeah or maybe something that they you know you would never see at a community theater i'm trying to think of some examples because it seems like it doesn't seem like there's anything that some community theater would just never do well i mean they might have certain uh rules or conventions about 10 mm. kinds of shows they tend to avoid yeah, but I, I can't I can't really picture something that would just never be done. Well, <laughs> I'm sure there's something. So that's kind of that. I mean, there's also, you know, it's something that might have kindled our love for directing or, <laughs> or reinforced it. it or destroyed <laughs> it. I mean, I, I suppose there could be a negative influence. I think we're talking mostly about positive influences here. Well, I guess they don't we'll, we'll get into our is. personal lists. I think there's a bit of both. Okay, I think I think I stuck more with the. Uh, more positive influences rather than negative. Okay. <laughs> so other than acting and directing, there's also just like uh, general production values that, that we might have wanted to be a part of or, or were a part of or just something that taught us about theater more or just fun casts or crews to direct with or to work with rather. Just like a really pleasant, constructive experience in general. Yeah. I mean, that can also be influence. Or just being a part of something, even if it wasn't necessarily like having a major role in it or mm -hmm. kind of was part of your vision per se, but just yeah, an opportunity came along to be involved. Sometimes you can be involved somewhat peripherally and that can still be influential or not even, not even involved at all really. But it's, it's kind of hard to pin down exactly what might be influential, but well, that's what we've tried to do here. <laughs> Fair enough. So once we had more of a definition of what, we were going to call influential. We had to kind of set down some some ground rules for it. Could be a specific production of a show of like one given show. It could be just a script, just a show that like, oh, this is something that I'm really interested in. But all I've done is read the script. Right. You haven't could, actually oh, been involved with it in a production right. yet. If we've been involved with multiple productions of a show that needs to be listed together so we couldn't list the same show twice. Fair enough. And it must be a show that has had a professional production. So not any original one acts or, you know, basically limits us from listing our own shows. Drat. Yeah, the, the shows we've written at any rate. <laughs> and finally, it has to be a show that's actually been created for or adapted to the stage. So we don't want to, like, sneak any movies or something like that in there. Like, <laughs> oh, but that influenced my theater directing style. But I've Quentin always Tarantino wanted to really see the Death Star on stage. <laughs> hey, I'm sure somebody's done it. <laughs> so I guess with that, I was kind of thinking, so we, we went with, our, you know, the usual top five thing. And then I, and then afterwards, I kind of added like an honorable mention section just because I had more to say. Yeah, I did the same. And I'm kind of wondering, part of me kind of wants to start with the honorable mentions. I'm fine I, with I would, that. I was kind of half that. thinking that myself. Yeah, because they're kind of at the bottom of the list. I have three honorable mentions on mine. 
Okay. How many of you got? I, don't I know, do I don't too. Know how we want this. I mean, I do also. I have three. Okay. Well, here, then I'll start with my my the one that I just listed first, which was something that I already mentioned earlier, which is all in the timing, where I did two different versions of that. The first time I did that show was the first community theater production I was ever in. The second time I did that show was the first time I received an acting award. And you did not so, play the same roles in both productions, correct? Not only did I not play the same roles, the role that I played in the first production was not even in the second production. Intriguing. So, yeah, all in the timing, is, for those who may not be familiar with it, is uh, David Ives' script that is essentially a collection of, you wouldn't really even call them one acts. I mean, I guess technically they are, but they're, they're vignettes. They're a little shorter they're than short, your average yeah. one act. And there are... I, I, I believe sometimes I, I think it's Philip Glass buys a loaf of bread is the title of the one that is not often done because it's a little more avant garde. OK, so that was pulled out of the first production that I did. And the one that I was in, which is called Foreplay or the Art of the Fugue, was put in. OK, but the one that I was in the second time, which is <laughs> the universal language. That is it. The universal language <laughs> that was in both productions, but I was Unamunda? not in it the first time. Onamunda, that's the Ding. name of the made-up language. <laughs> anyway, so that's my first honorable mention. What do you got? Okay, well, for the honorable mentions, I um, I did throw in a couple. Well, let me preface this by saying for the top five, I did stick to shows I've done in the realm of community theater specifically. So okay. two of my honorable mentions were actually shows that I did before community theater, as in I did mm -hmm. them in high school. And the first one, I'm not really gonna, going to go into a great level of detail because I already mentioned it during the Neil Simon episode, and that was Brighton Beach Memoirs. And you can go back and listen to that one. I think that was episode, episode number 40. 40, okay. Very good. You're prepared for that. Yes. So you can go back and listen to episode number 40 if you want to hear Jim talk about Brighton Beach Memoirs. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Okay. So my second honorable mention goes to the Stephen Sondheim, George Firth non-musical entitled Getting Away with Murder. So I don't know that it was necessarily all that influential, except it was my first foray into directing. So it was the first time that I was really getting to know how all of that worked and, and, and that sort of thing. Well, the fact that you kind of stuck with directing after that yeah. would kind of argue why it was influential to you. This is true. My second one, which I actually don't recall if we've talked about it before on this podcast, was Noises Off. This was another high okay. school production I did. And... Mm -hmm. It was influential in several regards, one of which was it was kind of a dream role for me. I played the role of Gary slash Roger. And uh, being really familiar with the movie at that point, I kind of liked that role and was really happy to have had the opportunity to play it. Uh, at the same time, it was kind of a challenge because you don't necessarily want to carbon copy somebody else's performance. So the sure. idea of taking a role that you're familiar, familiar with and try to put your own spin on it, which hopefully it's I did. It's always a challenge, yeah. Yeah. And it was just, uh, it was a fun group of people, you know, high school, it was kind of, if you think about it in retrospect, it was kind of, kind of pushing the limits as far as doing that as a high school production. Mm, um, I can see that. Yeah. Just based on the subject matter being a British sex farce kind of a thing, but keeping it mm -hmm. chased. Yeah. And I almost feel I like think, that could have, that, that almost could have made my honorable mentions. Cause I, that yeah, is something I, that, I mean, it, it's a farce that's, that's very near and dear to my heart. And I've seen several different productions of it. And I've always wanted to be in it. It was a lot of fun. It was really, it was a lot of work to put it together and to get through all the 
kind of almost choreography in a way of the blocking yeah. and all the action that takes place, but it was also very rewarding in the end when it all came together to pull mm-hmm. that off. All right. So I'm kind of proud for us collectively that we were able to do that. And you stuck with it. Yep. Yep. All right. So my third honorable mention is uh, Boeing Boeing. Speaking of farces, yes. that was a show that I directed that I'm kind of calling my second wave of directing. There were a number of shows and I kind of had a bad experience with a, a show called uh, Lifetimes 3. And that did not go, not exactly go as well as planned. And after that, I'm like, I need to take a break from directing. And I took what turned out to be a much briefer break than I expected. <laughs> but, Isn't that uh, always how it works? Yeah. But that's that's uh, when I put Boeing Boeing in and got got that show going. And then that was just such a it was, well, as I wrote down, a triumphant return after a break from directing. <laughs> that was something that rekindled and solidified my love of directing and gave me the confidence that I could put on a really good show. But I just had like a, you know, it was a small cast, but it was a really great cast to work with. And it was just so much fun and really just got me to be like, yes, directing is something that I do want to continue doing. And I know they're going to be ups and downs, but when the ups are that up, then it is completely worth it to me. Uh, cool. And my last honorable mention was the production that I did at Forge Theater. I've mentioned before, Laughter on the 23rd Floor. I saw that one. And uh, we talked about that during the Neil Simon episode. And the main area to me that it impressed upon me was just the camaraderie of the cast and kind of mm-hmm. the nature of the show being about a bunch of joke writers, comedy writers, kind of tended to bring that out in the people and just made rehearsals a lot of fun. All right. So I guess we can move on to our actual top five list. Yes. Why don't we do that? I guess since I went first with the other, should you go first with this or should I continue to go first? Why don't you go first? My first show is, believe it or not, a musical. Is this your number five? This is my number five. Number five. uh, is, Is a musical, which is surprising. And it is indeed the only musical on my list. And that is The Music Man. Really? So not only is it a musical, but it's a chestnut. Oh, boy. A double whammy. <laughs> and the reason that that is on my list is it was the first show that I was ever, ever in. And oh, that was that's right. Back... You were um, yeah. Winthrop. Yes, I was. Fifter, fifter. That was uh, <laughs> way back in sixth grade that like had gave me my initial love of performing. I remember back at the time, like I memorized the entire script wow. because I was young and, and had a a brain that still worked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I memorized the entire script. I had a great time doing it. So those, that's kind of my foundation of theater. And the first stuff that I did, the first thing that I knew, like this was something that was fun to me that I enjoyed doing even way back then. And it took me a very long time before I got into doing it again. But that foundation was laid with the music man. Well, geez, if we're going back that far, I might have to revamp my list. <laughs> no. Oh, why wouldn't I go back that far? I, I mean, won't. It's an influence. Fair enough. Anyway, what's your number five? <laughs> my number five, my actual number five on my list was my first community theater show that I did, of which you are already familiar. When, what would that be? Hotline from Death Defying Axe. And I think we probably discussed that one several times. I don't even think we could point to a single episode of that. but I don't even remember, but... Had I not auditioned for that show, the two of us probably would not be talking right now, doing this podcast. Possibly, yeah. I, you can go back to the first episode to hear us talk about that, right? Probably. Because I think we, we, we gave a little background and discussed how yeah, we met. So, I'm yeah, I'm sure. Go back to episode so, one. 
if you want to hear about hotline i won't go into too much more depth than that but Mm -hmm. suffice to say i think between having met you and kind of establishing us working together over the years and just the fact that it was my first community theater show and getting back into theater for the first time in as i had entered my working stage of life post school stage of life kind of reestablished it for me as something I could continue to do in that phase of my life. Mm -hmm. Right. Moving on to number four. Uh, My number four show is musical comedy murders of 1940. So first show is a musical. The second one has musical in the title, but But it's not not a musical. musical. No, it is not. That was my first community theater role that I felt was really like a, a real role, a challenging role, something where I had to do something different. Well, as you Uh, mentioned in previous episodes, it was a very diverse role as far as, having to kind of yeah. assume different personas throughout it. This is true. The The role that I played, honestly, do not recall the name of the character, but he was a German. He was a Nazi who, for most of the show, is pretending to be Irish. And then he gets caught with that, briefly pretends he's Italian, and then... And reveals his true colors. Reveals his true identity as, as a Nazi. So I had to do an Irish accent for most of the show, and then a few lines with a really bad Italian accent and then switched into the German accent. So I, I, I mean, I, I made a lot of mistakes, but I learned a lot with that. It was also like the first show where I got to do all these accents. I have done accents and shows since then, which I learned, you know, you actually can't just pick that up and be like, I'm just going to do an accent. So yeah. I'm going to fake it. Yeah. <laughs> Certain times that can work well. Like I can pick up a Scottish accent at any point now, <laughs> but uh, you practiced yeah, a lot I, on that one. Yeah, but I mean, that was something where I had already learned the lesson and I, right. I taught myself how to do the accent properly. Right. As opposed to the Irish accent where I kind of just sounded like a, a Lucky Charms leprechaun <laughs> at, at best. <laughs> not, okay, not like your so, roommate, right? <laughs> so let's move on now. And what's your number four show? <laughs> so you want to know my number four, huh? Yes, I do. All right. My number Very- four was yet another <laughs> show in which we were both involved. And that would be Dracula. Blah, blah, blah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say that that's, that's on my list a little further up. So I... why don't you go ahead and discuss it and then I'll... Okay. Well, I will you. explain how it was influential to me. Probably the major way it was influential to me was that it was my first major serious sound design gig. And you knocked it out of the park. Thank you. <laughs> It was it was a challenge. It was a lot of work, but it kind of allowed me to figure out inventive ways to do things and cut my teeth immensely on that project and just learning a lot cut, about cut how your fangs, as cut it my were. fangs. Yes. <laughs> Sunk my teeth into it, as it were, uh, and just taught me a lot about how to go about doing it and probably taught me the most about it than any other show I've done sound design for, I would say. It was challenging. There was a lot of layers to the sound plot that kind of made it intriguing and interesting to pull off and put together. It wasn't just that, though. I mean, the show, I mean, the source material I love. (laughs) So that helps a great deal. Just the atmosphere, the theater in which we did it, the barn, it was my first show I was involved with at the barn. And Mm -hmm. that was just such a great space to do that show in, I thought. Especially with the bats. Well, yeah, that helps. (laughs) It, it, It added to the atmosphere, the all black stage pretty much just, really kind of set the tone and the mood plus the time of year uh early october you know perfect for the halloween season and just the the group of people involved with it it was uh it was a fun crew to work with 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just kind of all those ingredients put together, as well as the uh, kind of uh, opening a door for me in the sound design plot. You've stayed um, inside that door since Yeah, then. that's pretty much what I've done the most of out of anything that I've been involved with in community theaters. I've gone back to look. Yeah. Well, so Dracula was my number two show. Okay. Um, which was, as you said, it's just a great story. And it was a story and a novel that I had always loved. Uh, and, I, and I put in to direct it before I had picked a version, a script version, which interestingly, <laughs> they, they approved for me to direct it. And then they're like, well, which version are you going to direct? And I'm like, all right, well, I got to go back and decide that. So I managed to find an adaptation written by Stephen Dietz, which was very, uh, it, it was it honored the original story, the, the novel, more so than uh, there's a script written by uh, Balderston and Dean. And it's that the was version. the basis for the 1931 film, was it not? That is correct, which I also love, but is very different than the book. Yes. This script really honored the book in, in a great way, so I was very happy to find that. And that was a uh, challenge because obviously it had to take certain liberties because you couldn't realistically easily portray mm-hmm. all the locations that Absolutely. are caught out so, for in the, the original novel. Yeah, and that made the that made directing it very challenging. They obviously couldn't put every single location in the script. There were still a lot of different locations and a lot of like suggested locations and things like that that I had to work with and figure out how I was going to stage that and all of that sort of thing. Hey, you know what helped with that a little bit? Some of the sound effects. Yes, the sound effects <laughs> did a great job at establishing locations in certain circumstances. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that, and that one's also on my list because of, as you said, it was just such a great group to to work with. And I, and I made like a lot of friends with that show that I stuck with for a long time. I think that was like kind of when you and I more solidified our friendship. Well, I guess that kind of started with uh, Picasso because you did the uh, sound design for that, which came before. Right. But that was a cakewalk compared to. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dracula, I just had this vision of this, you know, music weaving in and out of scenes with sound effects. Sometimes there would be, you know, one longer sound effect and then other sound effects that would come in on top of it. So there'd be like, I think you had like three different tracks going at once. With that, yeah, it was right? a layered sound plot. And you're right. Yes, it was certainly complex. So that was my number two. My number three before that was uh, The Crucible. And that uh, is, yes. most, yeah, I mean, that's mostly on there because I, I played dream John role. Parker, which is a, a dream role, which... I didn't necessarily feel like it was a dream role at the time I did it. It was just kind of like, okay, I got to do this. Yeah, and in addition to being just a fantastic role, it's also the first show that my current wife and then, I guess, girlfriend. Your current wife? Well, yes, my current wife, my now (laughs) wife, whatever. She is my current wife. She's the only wife I've had, but she's still my current wife. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it, it was. Uh, so it was the first show that she saw me in, and like I said, I don't know if I'd call her the, my girlfriend at that time because we had like just started dating. But you know, she brought a few friends to the to that and was impressed enough with my performance to not break up with me. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a tough role and and a lot of fun to do. It wasn't like a cast that I really connected with that much. I mean, I didn't. There are, there are a couple of people that I've stayed in touch with from that show, but overall, it wasn't. I, I never went back to that theater and it also moved further away. So that became less likely. I had done only one other show there before then and none since, but you know, it, it was something that it was like, okay, I can audition for a role. I can get a lead. I can get a fantastic role like that. So that's my number three and my number two. So you, you've got two to go now. Okay. So I'll go to my number three, 
My number three was a show I did at Playcrafters of Skipback early one evening at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. And mm. pretty much focusing on the acting element for this particular show. It was very intense, kind of demanding role in a way. Uh, not quite the same way, I guess, as John Proctor. But for me, I think it was sort of an odd combination of putting a lot of demand on me, but also in a weird way, still playing a role that was kind of very similar to me. Okay. <laughs> Yet just different enough. I, I guess part of the challenge to it maybe at the time was that I was playing a 31-year-old character. So somebody who was a little bit more world-weary, perhaps. And I was only 24 at the time. Okay. Not a huge difference. No, but in other... Enough. <laughs> well, there are other elements to it, I guess. It was also a role being kind of the straight man against a bunch of more eccentric characters, which... Mm -hmm. That's always challenging. That is really challenging, as well as a role where I was on stage almost the entire show. Mm -hmm. It was the first show I had to kiss more than one person. Well, the first show I had to kiss anybody, let alone more than one person. Actually, three people. <laughs> I don't think I've ever kissed more than one person in a single show. I say three people because uh, one of the roles had to be double cast mm -hmm. because the original person cast in the role got injured and was not going to mm -hmm. be available to do all the performances. So they brought in another actress to help fill in the role. So, so they traded off three, three actresses that you had to cast. <laughs> Pretty much. Yes. Yeah. And just trying to maintain the focus of the character for that entire time and not lose it in response to in an inadvertent response to the zany antics of the other characters right that was that made it a very demanding role and it pushed my boundaries in terms of acting and mm. it probably also maybe laid bare some of my limitations at the time i started to have some self-doubt second guessing myself a bit and i think after that i did not audition for anything or get into anything for about a year so I took. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly had my my moments where I was doubting my ability and things like that. But a lot of the times when I had roles that didn't go so well, I feel like I, I learned from them. Mm -hmm. But I, it's kind of tough if you've got something like that big that you you when you feel like you drop the ball on something that big, because it sounds like your experience with that is or, or that role is similar to what I had with uh, Out of Sight, Out of Murder, where you're playing a straight man with a lot of wacky characters and you're on stage most of the time. Yes. That's, Similar sort of thing that I had, but I mean, I felt comfortable in that role, especially since I was apparently playing myself. So that made that easier. It wasn't um, so much the role I was uncomfortable with. I think it was just kind of a lot to do with my involuntary responses to what was going on around me. Oh, OK. I, I think some of the responsibility of that, though, belongs to the director. And I don't think you can completely blame yourself on that one. Why do you say that? Well, if if you're reacting to stuff that you shouldn't be reacting to, then the director should be working with you to find out where those spots are. Right. And, and work on those spots. Well, I think I'm just thinking back to it. I think there was probably some element of, you know, sometimes, especially with a comedy, there could be a tendency for actors to want to take things up a notch. Yeah. During the actual performances. So there was probably a bit of that uh, going on and it was probably throwing me off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that's when the director might need to step in and go, hey, dial it back. Because I you're, think you're that probably did large. come to that point towards the end of mm -hmm. the run. Yeah. Well, that's a tough situation. Yeah. So that's your three. What's your number two? Mine was Dracula. All right. So. My number two ranking show is the farcical comedy Play On. 
Okay. That was, I believe, the second main stage production I did at Village Players of Hatboro, and it was the first main stage production that I had had a hand in directing, even though I was okay. assistant director for that particular production. Okay. But it was my first opportunity to have a hand in directing a main stage production. I mean, up to that point, I had just done a staged reading. That was the only other thing I had directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a really fantastic group of people that we got to work with on that one. The script obviously gave us a lot of opportunities to have fun with it because it was yeah. so silly and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. As the assistant director, the fact that I was also stand-in for various people during rehearsals, that kind of gave That's me fun, yeah. kind of a lot of fun to do because I could yeah. just, you know, play characters that I know I was never going to have to play in front of an audience or that I would ever actually even be considered for, but just have fun with. Right. Takes that, all the pressure off, too. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is why I say that being assistant director is like the best job in theater. You have the creative input, which I got to throw in lots of little, you know, character business and whatnot to people. Didn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to look at the big picture of the show all the time. And, of course, probably the most longest-lasting influential reason why I put that on my list is because that's where I met Aaron. Ah, well, there you go. <laughs> so that's your number two most influential show. And, which I'm starting, us... and I'm starting to get a feeling that we may have picked the same number one. Uh, it's entirely possible, but uh, <laughs> uh, my number one most influential show is True West. That was also my number one. Let's see. So I, let me I'll, I'll, I'll discuss my reasons. So th- this is a show that I uh, saw on Broadway. I saw it at uh, Circle in the Square in uh, back in 2000. Uh, the, the production with John C. Riley and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Absolutely loved the show. I Bunch thought it was of nobodies. Fantastic. Yeah, really. <laughs> but this was this show, that production in particular is probably one of the main reasons that I got into directing because I just loved watching how like I could pick up on how certain directing choices had been made and looking at it and going, okay, I, I mean, this was, I had just started doing community theater, but I'm already picturing how I could stage this and how it would work in a more intimate setting. Once that production came together, I managed to get two fantastic leads for that, that show. And it really still looking back on it now is one of my favorite shows that I've directed. And I mean, it's hard to say I've, I've directed 10 main stage shows. Now each of them has a special place in my heart in their own way. Some of them did not go so well, but I'm still proud of what they became and, and what certain people who did put in the effort have done. But this one is just, I can just look at this and I go, it was just such a fantastic experience for me. And that was something that just solidified my love of directing because it was something that I had pictured and it went up and I still had my problems back then. And I was still pacing down in the green room during certain parts where I would just get really nervous about it. But there were other parts where I was just sitting in the back of the house and the stage manager would uh, sneak me a piece of toast and a cup of coffee, (laughs) which was literally made on stage like five minutes earlier, which is right. Munching on toast, sipping on coffee, enjoying the production. And it was just, just a great time. And it just, it still sticks with me as something like, okay, yeah, I, I can direct this. This really worked. So why is it on your list as number one? It's a show that I've been involved with two different productions of, yours right, and you my did. own. Yeah. So we'll start with yours, because that was chronologically earlier. Having the opportunity to compose original music for a show was yeah. wonderful. It really got my creative juices flowing as far as trying to establish a musical vision for the show. Kind of really, it was really the first time I had to sort of 
work within a framework of a story and set a tone that would be appropriate for that. And I discussed that with you as far as the beats, the musical beats, as it were. Yep. I'm not talking about the <laughs> I'm talking about the, the the moments. The moments. It was sort of reflecting what was going on in the show at the point each point. Putting this all together in I don't know, was it six months maybe? Five or six months? If, yeah, if that much. I think it was uh, less than that. Okay. Well, writing it, demoing it, and then going back and recording it. And I think also I was changing jobs at the time as well as I was in another production. <laughs> so yeah, I remember... I, I'm still I'm still amazed at how, how you pulled this off and did such a fantastic job with it. Thank you. I'm kind of amazed myself that I was able to be that productive given everything that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. And having kind of, you know, having a deadline to work toward was... Uh, one could say that that would freak somebody out, but uh, it kind of focused me. It, it yeah, got, it drove me. It was motivating. It just really drove me and energized me to make that, to put that together. So, so a couple years later, I got the upper, well, actually, it wasn't a couple years later. It was almost a decade yeah, later. Like, now yeah, I, I was going to say it. like that. <laughs> wow. Anyway, the opportunity came up to direct the show at Village Players of Hapro. And after some deliberation, I. Decided, yes, absolutely, let's go for it. And that was a completely different experience. (laughs) Other than reusing all of that previous music, it was a process that did not go incredibly smoothly. Well, there were casting issues. I remember you had that. That was the main element of it. Bless all the people who were there from the beginning, who stuck with it, who dealt with all the adversity. I got to give a lot of credit to my Austin, Dustin. He was really, I think, the rock of the show, the production. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to thank Kevin too for stepping in with like a month to prepare to do Lee. And that is a tough role to only have a month to prepare. <laughs> I know. Given the circumstances of the adversity we had to deal with, what came out of it, I think, was impressive mm-hmm. for what we what we had to work with and work against, I guess, or work through. Right. And just everybody else, uh, Allison, Steve, Phyllis. For just sticking it out and, you know, hanging on when I was probably really becoming kind of despondent and wondering towards the end, wondering when am I ever going to want to direct again? (laughs) It can be tough sometimes. I mean, I think every director gets that show where they're just like, can I keep doing this to myself? (laughs) Because it's a lot of work. And sometimes you get things like cast issues that 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 come up that are kind of out of your control and yet you're still responsible for fixing them. Uh, All right, so those are our top five most influential shows. You know, if you've got shows that influenced you, we'd love to hear about them. You can call and leave us a message, 267-225-8869, or shoot us an email, podcast at backstage.link. And if you enjoyed this show, please make sure that you subscribe. If you haven't subscribed already, leave us a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. Tell tell a friend about us because that's how we get more listeners and we like listeners. So next week on the Backstage Show, we're going to be doing an interview, right? I believe so. A gentleman that we have mentioned in previous episodes, another Steve, because we don't have any Steve limits on this production, on this podcast. As Uh, many Steves as we can get. That's right. Uh, This would be Steve Niles and we're going to be talking to him about his perspective of being involved with both community theater and independent film and we can discuss some of the differences between those two things and the similarities yes all right so tune in then 
And until next week, I'm Glenn. And I'm Jim. And thank you for joining us backstage. Bye-bye. Please pardon Glenn while he gets another scotch. Arm for record. Hi, Luna. Luna meow again. <laughs> wow. One more. Oh, shit. Did you freeze again? What, what you sent me was really uh, a hot recording. Thanks. I also have to plug the microphone in, and I kind of forgot about that part. Popeye's popcorn chicken. Popeye's popcorn chicken. Do we have any plugs? No plugs, right? Uh, no plugs. Okay. This I week, still have my uh, original hair. So we talked about intriguing roles. Something. Ow. What Sorry. happened? Claw to oh. just jumped up into my lap and landed with her back claw on my my left paw. Uh, my number two is my number two is smelly. I'm gonna cut that. Go ahead. <laughs> Outtake. Excuse me. Oh my god! I went back to Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, uh, Crucible uh, doesn't strike me as a show you're gonna have a hoot doing per se, uh, but. You know, I, I, I think myself I as somebody that cannot tell a joke, quite honestly. Okay. Why don't you try? Go ahead. Tell a joke. I can't even think of one at the moment. <laughs> That's always Guy too much pressure. Guy walks into a bar and... No, I can't. Guy walks into a bar. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> okay, moving on. Anyway. Pass the bad jokes. If you've got a joke for Jim to tell, you can email us at podcast at backstage.link. Or call and tell us a joke. Leave us a message at 267-225-8869. I got a joke. Ask me if I'm an orange. No, thank you. <laughs> I mean, are you an orange? No! Oh. That's the joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, a please really off-the-wall joke. Yeah, call, email, give him a better joke than that. <laughs> <laughs>